Welcome to Behind the Data, the podcast that takes you inside the world of market research and breaks down the topics we love to nerd out on. Today, I'm joined by Media Egbal and Daniel Solomon from our Economies and Consumers team. Among many things, Media and Daniel analyze national economic performance and market sizes. That's kind of a, a big, broad title. Media, Daniel, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, thank you for having us. So when it comes to national economic news and looking at, you know, market sizes and performance, I think one of the most obvious topics that comes to mind is Brexit. And today I'm going to play the role of ignorant American and, and ask you both to help me set the stage and, and help us all maybe wrap our heads around what's happened, what's going on, and sort of what those future implications could look like and what that means for businesses. Uh, so it's a tall order, but I think we can do it. Let's start with the initial vote a couple of years ago and sort of walk through what's happened over the past two years. Yeah, sure. So uh, as you said, we had the referendum which took place in June 2016. And just to really emphasize that this is this is unprecedented. No other member state has ever left the European Union. And it also it was a very narrow vote. Only 51.9% voted to leave. So that's why Brexit is so divisive in the UK today. It wasn't a clear majority. So following the, the referendum, Theresa May became prime minister in July 2016. And she then uh, triggered Article 50, which is in March 2017, and that is the two-year mechanism to leave the European Union. So that's why today our Brexit deadline, is, as it were, is March 2019. Um, there were a lot of divisions about Brexit already back in 2017, so there was a snap election um, which resulted in a hung parliament. So that's basically when the Conservatives lost their majority and they had to enter into a confidence and supply arrangement with the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party. Um, and this basically means that the Conservatives need their support effectively to get any um, policies through. And that's why the Irish border issue has become particularly problematic because they need the support of this party. So uh, UK-EU negotiations actually began a year after the referendum, so that was in June 2017. And by December of that year, they had concluded the divorce bill and the principles of how to leave the EU. And in March 2018, all of this was confirmed in a transition um, deal being agreed. But it wasn't until July 2018, so that's two years on from the referendum, that uh, Theresa May published the Chequers plan and that's what we see today in the form of the deal. So that was really the first time that the UK has actually explicitly outlined what they want from a future relationship with the EU. And that that is basically what forms the premise of the deal that we have today, which is the Brexit withdrawal agreement. And that was confirmed with the EU and agreed in, in November 2018. And that's the plan that's sort of being discussed today. I know there are a lot of votes still happening. Yeah, that's basically the the agreed deal that they've kind of managed to um, approve as of today. There's only one deal on the table, and that's based on May's Chequers plan. 
Okay, so I think we have a, a, a good historical context. Let's jump in a little more to the votes that have been happening recently. I feel like I'm hearing on the news every two weeks or so, another vote is happening, another vote is happening. Can you sort of help you know, provide some context around what's going on there? Yeah, so there's been a lot of chaos since um, we agreed a deal. So basically, the government was found in contempt of parliament for failing to publish the full legal advice on Brexit. Um, she then ended up surviving a vote of no confidence by her own Conservative Party. This is Theresa May. Uh, she then had to survive a vote of no confidence in the government, and that was tabled by the opposition party, which is the Labour Party. And then in January, her deal, which was approved in November 2018, was actually uh, defeated. So there was a historic record um, defeat in terms of a vote on any kind of major policy. Wow. Yeah, it was it was not a good, <laughs> good innings for Theresa. May. Um, so after this historic defeat, she had to come up with a plan B, and that was basically to try and renegotiate her deal. Um, but the main the main element that they want her to renegotiate is the Irish backstop. And what exactly is a backstop? So the backstop's a little bit complicated. It always is with Brexit, right? <laughs> exactly. There's no simple answer. Um, but it basically is designed to prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland um, in, in the absence of a future deal. So at the moment, um, after Brexit Day, which is the 29th of March, um, we're going to enter a transition period where it will be pretty much business as usual. Um, but then if the idea is that we'll hopefully we'll reach a free trade agreement by the end of the transition period, which is the end of 2020. But if that fails, then they need to come up with a plan of how to prevent a hard border. So basically, the whole of the UK will stay in a customs union um, until a deal is reached. But this basically means that Northern Ireland will have to be more closely aligned to the EU than the rest of the UK. Um, so, yeah, the, the people that really want, you know, a, a complete break with the European Union are worried that this is, you know, this is going to become permanent, that um, we're indefinitely going to be tied to the EU. And what, what if we don't get a deal? And effectively, we're ending up with a border between Northern Ireland um, and the rest of the UK and the Irish Sea. So, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> complicated, I think, is the right word. Um so I think we have a, a decent sense of what has been happening, but I kind of want to take a little bit of a shift and talk about what that really means. You know, uh, all these votes are happening, all of these referendums are passing. Can you talk to me a little about, you know, the day-to-day -day implications for businesses? How will this really impact people? The reason why Brexit is such a major issue is that um, the, the EU is the UK's largest trading partner. So basically exports to the EU account for 48% of UK exports and imports from the EU account for 51% of UK imports. So it's a huge, a huge market. And all the economic analysis from the government and even within our own analysis in Euromonitor confirms that Brexit will leave uh, economies and business and consumers worse off under every scenario than if we stayed in the EU. So we're going to see um, the main problem has been two years of uncertainty and this uncertainty is, is ongoing because we still don't know if we've got a deal and this is resulting in declining business confidence. So many companies are 
um, you know, holding off their investments. They're looking to move their headquarters or even relocate entire business operations to the EU. So obviously that's going to incur additional relocation costs. Um, if there's no investment or a weaker investment environment, then that's going to result in higher unemployment levels. And all of this will result in a, in a weak exchange rate. So that results in higher inflation and higher input costs. And all of this will again continue to dampen consumer and spending potential. So it's it's weighing on uh, the UK's economic growth potential. Um, and there are two other things that we need to remember. So businesses are likely, as well as all of this uncertainty, um, they're likely to have to face additional cost and time um, implications when it comes to uh, customs delays at the borders and also if there's uh, stricter rules on EU migration a lot of businesses particularly in sectors like agriculture or the services industry or in construction who are really reliant on this these EU migrants they're also going to be kind of um, uh, suffering when it comes to uh, their labor input. That was one of my biggest questions is how kind of immigration would would play a role in all of this and how you know, the people and the labor force uh, would be impacted. I, th I think they've, uh, as part of the withdrawal agreement, they have made it clear that existing EU nationals, they're going to try and preserve the rights of existing EU nationals. Um, but a lot really depends on what kind of deal we end up with. So um, I know that Daniel's going to talk a bit yeah, more about I, the scenarios. I, I would... <laughs> Please do, Daniel, shed some light on this. First of all, in, under any scenario, the plan is basically to restrict uh, if they implement what Theresa May has negotiated with the uh, EU in November, they will restrict future mi migration uh, okay. from the EU. That's going to have a negative impact regardless of, you know, keeping uh, uh, the current residents from the EU in the UK rel relatively safe in the UK. Uh, it's it's going to make it harder, for example, to, you know, it can increase labor costs for everything from uh, producing, uh, uh, picking fruits and, and, and um, groceries uh, to other things. Uh, because of this restriction on on, on for migration in the future. Um, okay, in terms of the scenarios, well, we have one of the most interesting political binds, uh, maybe in the last hundred years, I believe. Basically, because you have one side of uh, the British Parliament, which is very strongly um, pro uh, leaving the EU almost under any condition, and as far as you're concerned. Yeah, the major problem with uh, the deal which has been negotiated uh, is that it will lead to most likely to maintain um, a long term customs union uh, arrangement between the UK and the EU because that's, well, that's essentially the minimal level of separation between the UK and the EU in commercial terms, which is compatible between um, having a free border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is important for preserving the peace between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, some of your listeners might remember the troubles uh, in the 70s and 80s and, and the fact that there were death and terrorism going on there, and that's important for avoiding that. And on the other hand, um, you want free commercial movements and movements between the rest of the UK um, and Ireland. Sure. So in the baseline scenario, uh, you know, they'll keep on, let's say they accept the preliminary framework, which was agreed uh, in November, which will uh, in include this backstop uh, arrangement. But basically, the most likely result of negotiating during a trans transition period uh, over 2019-2020 is that they're going to end up with a customs union 
uh, between the UK and EU anyways, with some extra provisions. And that customs union is, is what's currently on the table, or you think that's something that will change during negotiation? It could be that the negotiations transition towards a light Brexit scenario. It could be that they break down again. But if they ultimately negotiate something, this is the minimal arrangement which safeguards free border between inside Ireland, uh, between Northern Irish part and the Republic of Ireland, and at the same time allows them to uh, have uh, free movement and, and commercial transactions between Ireland and, and the rest of the UK. Okay. If the baseline is that they're going to end up ultimately with that. Uh, now, the problem is that you have two strongly opposed factions on one side, the Brexiteers, which would like to essentially, they say, forget it. Uh, you know, we still... This uh, customs union means abandoning too much control to uh, EU legislation and EU institutions um, and uh, giving them too much of a say in British politics and decision making. So, you know what, we would prefer to just go for no deal and just crash out even if necessary out of the UK. That's on one side. On the other side, you have Remainers who would much prefer, uh, you know, ideally maybe not even leaving the EU, but as a second best option to negotiate a deal which is much closer uh, to staying in the EU, which is a light Brexit uh, scenario in which essentially uh, the UK would still stay part, uh, not just of having free, like no customs and customs union, but what's called the European single market in which uh, you also avoid any like you have harmonized regulations uh, on goods, uh, services can freely circulate uh, between the UK and the EU, financial institutions would be able to continue uh, to offer all um, services on the continent, on the European continent from London, whereas if you get a customs union, you would have no customs for goods, but for services, you may have restrictions and you will still have some all sorts of non-tariff barriers like different uh, regulatory legislation uh, between EU and UK. So that's uh, yeah the crux of the dilemma, that you have two sides which really don't like the default deal which is on the table right now. So they have that in common, at least, and yet neither of them are happy with what the base is. Yeah, the, one of the biggest um, votes uh, against the government uh, on any legislation, I believe since 1924 or something, I, I forgot how many hundreds of uh, MPs voted against it, but it, yeah, it was one of the worst defeats for for government legislation. And and let me go. Okay, in terms of consequences, in terms of economic consequences. Yeah, what does this mean? What do the different scenarios cause? The baseline forecast, which is somewhat more probable than the other possibilities, that involves basically okay, Parliament agrees to May's uh, proposals from November with some small modifications where maybe the EU will say that maybe, I don't know, eventually we could uh, abandon the backstop or there could be some wording of flexibility from the EU, but the EU is, has not shown any sign to make major changes. And, and economically speaking, that will that's the baseline forecast, which is roughly 1% to 2% GDP growth annually in the UK, around 1.5% if you want more precision, uh, over 2019, 2020. Uh, there will be some negative impact in, term, in terms of steel. You will have people live, uh, financial institutions will still, still displace a lot of their activities away from London towards Frankfurt uh, or Amsterdam. There will some, be some non-tariff barriers facing UK goods. But ultimately, this is a relatively mild scenario where 
the overall UK economy contracts by uh, over the long term by yeah, two to three percent relative to what would have happened if they had stayed in the EU. Uh, if I don't know for some reason in the in the end the people the, the MPs that have mostly voted no deal and if if it turns out that there is a majority to get a light Brexit then we could be headed towards a second referendum eventually where. I think the polls now indicate that most Brits by some moderate margin would actually vote to stay in the EU. So that's on the upside. On the downside, after all these votes, Parliament keeps delaying uh, the major decisions in a sense uh, until the last possible moment because they are having such a hard trouble coming to a collective decision in a sense. Yeah, they're keeping us on the the edge of our seats there by delaying more votes. The problem is that the way Article 50, this legislation for leaving the UK was structured, is that the default, if no agreement is reached once it is triggered, so by the two years starting uh, from March 2017 until the end of March uh, this year, if no agreement is reached, then the default is that the UK leaves without any agreement. So there is kind of a, a hard deadline. Yeah. So that's the main problem. If you know if this exit happens quickly without any transition period of until 2000, you know, December 2020, for example, you know, you have to set up all this infrastructure of customs, and mm-hmm. uh, suddenly, you know, you could have lines of trucks, uh, you know, uh, traveling for uh, by ferry, by waiting to get into the UK to to sell stuff in the UK. Essentially, the Bank of England has done. Their most extreme scenario suggests that it could lead to something close to what happened in the financial crisis in 2008-2009. Wow. It's one of those situations where literally almost everything is still possible. So my big question, and this is for both of you, uh, you know, with anything being possible and things changing on the whim of a couple, you know, of, of politicians voting one way or another, how do you approach researching a topic like this? You know, how can you make forecasts when things are changing so quickly. Can you talk us through just your process and how you you approach this? Uh, I think the main thing to remember is that one does not just forecast a single number. You try to think of multiple possible scenarios. Uh, You forecast ranges of events and probabilities uh, rather than just uh, uh, one baseline outlook, which, which we still have, but it's just you need to remember in this context that it doesn't, it's not as meaningful as in normal circumstances. And a lot of news that you can follow that, and then, you know, keep regular track of news. You start from one prior perspective where you could start from is, and then you start updating based on how the news flow moves or how, um, how the data moves depending on, on the specific situation. But here it's really a matter of keeping track of the news and getting a sense of, has it become more likely now? Um, I, I would agree that it's the keeping up with the news that's the the main and most challenging because there is so there is literally so much going on every every day something new seems to be happening you know for example in December she uh, Theresa May decided to com- postpone the first vote completely and just wait until um, January so you know that kind of upsets markets and it just makes things more uncertain so yeah the biggest challenge is to um, try and stay up to date with everything because it it is a very fast moving anything could happen situation. Keeps it exciting though, right? No. It is. Mm-hmm. It is one of the most interesting 
projects I've worked on. Um, but I have to be honest that I'm almost wanting to an end to it. But I don't, you know, if they extend Article 50 next year, this could be this could go on and on for another year. Um, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting. So you're saying you'll come back for a follow up episode? No. <laughs> Potentially. Well, I would, I would, I would hope. Yeah, there's there's other things happening in the world like China slowdown and things like that. But yeah, I I, I still have to keep an eye on Brexit. Yes. Um, so I'm not sure that it would be Brexit specific. So I'll I'll start by saying this can be across anything in your career. Kind of a, a lighter, fun question, but we like to ask everyone who joins us: What is the weirdest thing you've ever researched, or the weirdest thing you've come across in your research? Um, I personally uh, have. I mean, because I work on the analysis side, I haven't really done anything weird as such. But I noticed a really big difference between kind of or research work pre-global financial crisis and post-global financial crisis. So I'd, I would just say that was a definite turning point in terms of economic analysis. Everything before the global financial crisis was kind of ticking along and, you know, emerging markets were growing and, um, you know, things, things were happening as you'd expect. But I think the global financial crisis uh, threw a real spanner in the works and it's kind of just shown that how closely connected the global economy is and how vulnerable mm. um, countries are. And it's just made, you know, since then, we've had sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone. We've had, um, obviously, um, the Trump kind of phenomenon in, in the USA. We've had Brexit. We've had rising populism. We've got China slowing down. We've got Africa rising. So uh, and then are still many economies 10 years on are still not even recovered from the impacts of the global financial crisis. So I would say it's more just a very interesting development and a big difference in the way our work has kind of gone from that from that period 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. You can argue that a lot of macroeconomics is weird nowadays. <laughs> Just, I don't know, I, I have memories of uh, uh, being on vacation in Sweden and, and seeing on the, the, the leave side one and then going back on the plane uh, from my holiday and, and starting to draw ideas of what exactly does that imply for macro scenarios and uh everything from the you know waking up and listening to the news in the morning that when trump won uh the elections in november 2016 and again how does that impact the forecasts um uh, and and how to uh, quickly change uh, a report which was essentially premised on hillary clinton becoming president and, and some sections of it needed to be changed uh, so, so there's a lot of things like that, or the, t the time when you see something on, the, on TV about uh, Greece potentially uh, crashing out of the Eurozone, and again, you, you are asked to do a scenario about that. So, so, so there's a lot of things. Maybe more recently, there was this incident where I'm trying to follow up on what's happening in, in China, uh, financial uh, situations, and I found myself uh, somehow reading Chinese on the People's Bank of China websites. So never a dull moment. I suppose you could use that cliche if you wanted to. <laughs> well, Media and Daniel, thank you both so much for joining us. I know you've shed light on what is an incredibly complex issue and is still unfolding. We don't have all of the answers, but I think it's been really helpful to kind of take a walk through what's been going on and, and what that could mean for the European economy. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of Behind the Data. We hope you're as curious as we are and will continue to listen as we dissect data, research, and everything in between.